voices from our perspective. Voices of the Directly Impacted here on Justice Radio. Your host, Marian Anderson. Today, we have a very special guest, one of my favorite comrades in this work, Doug Dunbar. A little background story about how I, I met Doug. I was I was working as a peer support specialist at a peer-run recovery center, and Doug was there as a volunteer. And there was something about Doug that drew me to him. I didn't know what it was at the time, but I was about to find out. Not too long after I initially met Doug, I was pulled into some work around Penobscot County Jail, and I, I found myself working with Doug. And so brought him on the show today to give him a platform to, to tell his personal story, his experiences with you know incarceration and mental health, and um, some of his some of his work today. So without further ado, uh, Doug, I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it over to you. Let you sort of introduce yourself and and jump into your story. Thanks, Marian. You're one of my favorite uh, people as well, and I'm so glad that that we have met and that we work together on a number of issues. And uh, I never expected, in my wildest dreams or nightmares uh, or both, <laughs> that I would be uh, talking with you right now about these issues. Uh, because I never imagined myself uh, being one of those people, and I'm using that word intentionally, one of those people who somehow gets caught up in the what I used to call the criminal justice system. I now call it the criminal legal system because I find there's far too little justice for many parties in the system, including the victims of crime. Uh, but I never imagined that... Um, you know, that I would find myself incarcerated uh, and now working on these kinds of issues. I always cared about public policy issues and what is going on in our communities and in the world around us, but I never focused on these issues, at least not nearly enough until it became personal. Um, I grew up in Bangor, had a very nice lower middle income upbringing, as kids, we played in the neighborhood. I don't remember friends using substances. I don't remember even kids in the neighborhood drinking. I don't remember fights. My life was very, very nice as a as a young person, except what no one knew, and I couldn't tell anyone because of stigma and fear and all of those very real things, that I was suffering from two mental illnesses, obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety. I didn't know what they were called, when I was very small, but early on, I knew there was something wrong, uh, but I couldn't tell anyone, not my parents, not my two very nice sisters, not my best friends in the world. Uh, so I just uh, kept those things hidden and I dealt with them. I managed. Uh, life was often very challenging. Uh, for example, reading and writing were tormenting much of the time. I could read and write just fine. But I might read something, a page in a book, over and over and over again until I felt comfortable turning to the next page. And then I might feel like I had to go back and read page one again. OCD is fascinating, unless you suffer from it. It's often relates to, it often relates to having sort of ominous feelings that come over you or what they call intrusive thoughts that come into your mind. And then you feel like you have to repeat certain actions to sort of clear that away from your mind or get rid of that ominous feeling. 
So this is my life, and I kept it very hidden from uh, everyone. Uh, and I managed my way through, uh, you know, my childhood and young adulthood. The other thing about me that I want to mention, because it matters to my story, is that I was very focused on uh, trying to help people as a young person. I had a, a mother, both of my parents, particularly my mother, were always involved in raising money for something or helping or working at a charitable event. So that was sort of part of who I am. And I was interested in government and politics. And so in high school and college, I got involved in political campaigns. And off I went into a 30-year career in government. But my life changed dramatically on 9-11. 21 years ago last September, when the attacks occurred on 9-11, I was working in Washington, D.C. as then Congressman John Baldacci's press secretary. I ran his campaigns for Congress and then... I was his press secretary. And um, there I was on 9-11. No one knew what was going on in Washington or anywhere in the country or the world for that matter. And smoke was already rising out of the Pentagon, which was just a few miles away from Capitol Hill. And um, my OCD and anxiety spiraled out of control. From my bedroom window in my apartment in Washington, for three days and three nights, I could see smoke coming out of the Pentagon. They had big floodlights on that building where a plane had crashed into it. And smoke kept coming out of that building for three days and three nights. And for 10 years, roughly, after that, I had to sleep with a television on in my bedroom every night. I couldn't take the darkness or the lack of some sound. And the other thing that happened was I began drinking. The very next night, September 12th, I went to dinner with a coworker. And we drank a lot of wine. Now, I've never liked the taste of alcohol. But almost immediately, if not that night, then soon after, I realized I do not know how I will survive without alcohol. So it became my medicine. So I began self-medicating right after 9-11. And it was good medicine for a while. But over time, you know, the quantity and the frequency increased. I moved back to Maine. I became Governor Baldacci's press secretary. I was then asked to be, the title was Maine's Chief Deputy Secretary of State. I did that for a while. I did other things in government. All the while, you know, I'm drinking more and more. I became an alcoholic at some point. And then legal problems began. I got my first OUI in Southern Maine. Oh, gosh, I don't know, 12 years ago now. I've lost track of time. And I thought that would be it. You know, somehow the public would find out. There'd be a little small news story or I'd be in the police beat in a newspaper, but that never happened. No one found out. In fact, no one found out about my first five arrests. I was really good at bailing myself out of jail, making up excuses as to why I came home late, getting my car to the impound lot, and continuing to, frankly, drink and drive. I kept driving because I didn't want anyone to know there were problems. And if I stopped driving, people would know. And I kept drinking because I was an alcoholic. So I was arrested five times without anyone finding out. Not all OUIs. A couple of times it was, you know, violating the conditions of my release or violating my bail conditions because I was out on bail at times. Uh, but on my sixth arrest, I went to jail for 136 days, four and a half months. And it was the most fascinating experience of my life. And it opened my eyes to so many problems, so many injustices, so many inequities that I, you know, I knew existed, 
but I really never paid attention uh, to them. And I, I'll end <laughs> with this. You know, I tell people I have two great regrets. One, that I drove drunk for years and put everyone's life in jeopardy who, you know, passed by me on the road. Fortunately, I never harmed anyone, never got into an accident, harmed anyone. But that's one great regret that I was a threat to public safety. The other re great regret is that I did not pay attention during my 30 years in government to these incredible, massive problems in our criminal legal system. We do so many things wrong. It is extraordinary. And I wish I had paid attention, you know, 30 years ago when I might have been able to do more for these past three decades. Thank you for, for that really transparent introduction, Doug. I'm always so fascinated to hear your story. And, you know, I've, I've heard it time and, and time again, and I'm just so intrigued. It's very seldom that you hear folks folks who are in, you know, government or some some position of power landing in, in jail or prison. And so when I hear your story, you know, about the, you know, five times that you were arrested, that you were able to like, you know, cover that up and keep it moving and keep doing the work that you were doing, it speaks to at least some of the things that are actually wrong with the system, right? I'm really curious about the work you did while you were in government and what that looked like for you day to day when you were using, you know, when you were drinking. Were there other issues day to day that, that you faced that you had to navigate or, or cover up? You know, uh, I was meticulous about my substance use, and maybe it was partly because of the OCD, frankly. I, I kept everything so well covered up and concealed, and I knew how to manage it for a long time. You know, I didn't keep alcohol in my house. My father lives with me. And early on in my substance use, my mother also lived with me. And they were completely unaware. I never kept alcohol in the house. I kept the light beer that I settled on because I don't like the taste of alcohol. So I, I found an alcohol that was inexpensive and ubiquitous. You could find it anywhere. So I settled on an inexpensive light beer and I kept it always in my trunk of my car. But, you know, toward the end, yes, it affected my work. I was started to black out at times. Uh, my boss, toward the end, I was a deputy commissioner for a department, and the commissioner would contact me a few times toward the end and, and say, you know, I'd like to talk with you about that voicemail you left on my phone last night. And I would have no idea that I called and left a message, let alone, you know, what I talked about. So, yeah, it, it began, it affected my work considerably toward the end. You know, I wasn't someone who came from poverty. I wasn't uh, unhoused and my mental health problems and even my substance problems, I, you know, I managed pretty well with for a long time. But when I was in jail, my thought was, Doug, I don't know what you'll have when you get out, but you have got to work on these issues and you've got to tell your story because I don't want people to think you know, that only the homeless person goes to jail or only, I'm using this word intentionally, only the addict goes to jail, or only the drunk goes to jail. You know, uh, you know, these issues, mental health problems, substance problems can happen to anybody, any walk of life. And I know people realize that, but do they really? <laughs> and so when I was there in jail, I thought, boy, when you get out, you have got to tell your story and you've got to fight like heck for people who really don't have a voice or 
can't use it for a variety of reasons. Well, I'm I'm thankful that you had sort of, you know, that that epiphany or that that moment of like, you know, I have to I have to do this thing. I have to tell my story. Um, you know, I think <clears throat> I think you're right. I think, you know, it 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 doesn't discriminate and it does uh, impact uh, lots of folks. Right. Not just poor unhoused folks. Right. Like it impacts everybody. But so often, especially in the media. We only hear the stories about, you know, like you said, like the drunk or the addict. And I'm also using those words intentionally because I, I, I right. never do, um, exactly. you know, they're people, uh, but yep. those are the stories that you hear. Right. And it's like this, this fear mongering or, or propaganda, but um, yeah, we're going to take a, a quick break, Doug. And then I'd really like to dig into the work you've done since your release. Well, We'll take it back. Um, sort of what your experience was while you were in jail. Yeah. And then, um, you know, what you've chosen to do since you were released to, you know, sure. to, to impact, to make to make change. Um, yeah. So we'll take a quick break and then we'll get to that right after. to from our perspective voices of the directly impacted here on justice radio if you're just joining us i'm your host marion anderson and today we have a very special guest one of my favorite people and uh comrade in this work uh doug dunbar uh who just spent some time talking to us about uh his his work in in government and some of his struggles with with uh, mental mental health issues um, and how how that impacted his life, and so we're going to jump back into that, uh, Doug. I'd, I'd really like to hear about your experiences while you were in jail, and also uh, what you've chosen to do since you've been released. Well, thank you. Yes, uh, jail, as I mentioned, was the most fascinating experience of my life. And I would go back tomorrow and do it again, maybe not for 136 days, but I would absolutely go back to jail to learn the things that I did about so many problems and injustices and inequities. And I mentioned before that when I was in jail, I thought, you know, when I get out, I have to tell my story because I don't want people to think that only the person who's homeless or only the person uh, who's addicted to heroin. It can happen to anyone. It happened to me because of mental illness and I began self-medicating, but I was functioning until, you know, near the end when I went to jail. But the other thing I want to say is, as as you know, and I think a lot of listeners know, yeah, um, anyone can go to jail like I did, but the vast, vast majority of people in our jails are young, poor, and sick. Uh, and and why are they young, poor, and sick in our jails? Because a lot of those people cannot bail themselves out of jail. I was in jail with a guy who clearly struggled 
with mental illness. He lived in the woods in Newport in a tent. He loved living in the woods in Newport. Um, he, he didn't know a lot of basic things. When I was in jail, we were coming up on Thanksgiving. He didn't know when Thanksgiving occurred in the year. Um, but anyway, he was there for shoplifting energy drinks. His bail was $200 and he sat there for months because he couldn't bail himself out. Uh, so, uh, yes, I want people to know that anyone can go to jail like me. However, the vast majority of people in our jails are young, poor and sick. And it is uh, horrific uh, that we do this. So that bothered me so much when I was in jail. I was less worried about myself than I was for the people around me. You know, I knew that when I got out of jail, if I would take care of my mental health, finally, if I would be honest and open, take care of my mental health, get help for my uh, alcohol issues, I would probably be all right. I had a home to go back to. My family and support system hadn't abandoned me because they didn't even know that a lot of these issues were were developing. Um, I figured I could get a job again. I knew lots of people. Uh, but I wondered about these young people in their 20s and 30s, some of them teenagers um, who were clearly ill, who for the most part were really poor, didn't have connections that I had. What was going to happen to them? Because also when I was in jail, I realized we do so little to help these individuals when they get out. You know, they come into jail not doing well. They're often treated like animals. It just shocked me how backward and misguided everything seems to be in the system, from our courts to our jails and prisons. And, you know, I, there's obviously a debate about, well, is the system set up this way? You know, uh, is this the intent? Uh, or is it just so badly screwed up? Well, either way, you know, it, it, it does such harm and the ripple effects through society are extraordinary. So I, I knew that when I got out, particularly since I care about government, I care about government and jails and prisons and courts, they're government. Um, and and, and it, it, I just knew there had to be a much, much better way to do things. So I've been trying to do what little I can. Yeah, Doug, you know, you, you touched on something that, has been uh my experience um you know i i spent i've done six years in prison i've been to prison three separate times um for two years each time and i've i've done probably just about as much time in in county jails right it's like a it's like a revolving door like once you're in the system um you know lots of people get caught up in the system and it's because you don't have uh, the support you need while you're locked up in a cage to like get out and be successful. Right. There's like, right. there's like barely any uh, programming or, you know, uh, mental health or, or substance use treatment, right. Because jail is not a healthcare provider. Um, and, and so what happens is folks go in and they do their time and then they get out and they go back to what is familiar, right. What they know. Um, exactly. what they had before. And so 
Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, and so with, with the last few minutes of, of our interview, I would really love to hear about uh, the work you're doing currently. Um, I'm so thankful that, that, you know, while you were in, you made the decision to, to get out and, yeah. and do whatever you could, because, you know, I've had the pleasure of, of working alongside you now for, for a few years and um, you just, you, you do beautiful work. So I want to dig into yeah. that before we wrap up today. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, you have, people like you uh, have inspired me to uh, to want to do more. Um, I was a, sort of an activist when I was young. And then, frankly, uh, my mental health issues and then my years of of excessive alcohol use really kind of um, made me less interested, frankly, in making a difference in society. But boy, going to jail and seeing how horribly we treat people and how dysfunctional these systems are i you know it rekindled the desire to make a difference and it gave me a new mission in life um and um you know uh i've just tried to to address problems as i as i found them when i got out of jail um i was so concerned about the culture and the way people were treated at penobscot county jail that I wondered if there was some sort of oversight of jails. And I found that there's supposed to be a board of visitors, for example, for each jail and each prison in Maine. And uh, there wasn't one at Penobscot County Jail. And to be honest, Penobscot County Jail was in the majority because most county jails didn't have anything close to a functioning board of visitors. Uh, so that was one issue that I took on. And now, Penobscot County Jail does have a board of visitors. I'm not thrilled <laughs> with the way it operates, but, uh, and I reached out to other counties and other sheriffs and said, do you have a board of visitors and is it meeting? So uh, there is more being done to provide a little bit of oversight of jails. That was one issue. Um, you know, I've been part of an open Penobscot County Jail expansion that, that you're part of, thankfully, uh, trying to prevent uh, an enormous and enormously expensive new jail from being built. We need to focus our resources on helping people in the community so they never end up in jail. Um, and uh, I created this other collaboration called Penobscot County Cares. It's about 30 to 40 uh, agencies and organizations that deal with what I view as the primary underlying reasons that many people end up incarcerated, sadly, which is you know, a lack of affordable housing and homelessness, uh, substance use disorders and mental illness. And of course, two of those three, substance use and mental illness, uh, those are the reasons why I ended up in jail. So uh, Penobscot County Cares is trying to do what it can to create collaborations and uh, support organizations that are doing work to address those three crises. Um, and I've worked uh, also in a few years for, for the past few years uh, in workforce development trying to help people releasing from jails and prisons and people with mental health problems, people trying to get into recovery, helping them with uh, accessing education, training and employment, because those things, obviously, uh, once you get your health moving in the right direction, you know, education and employment can be so helpful for many obvious reasons. So that's some of the work that I'm doing. Uh, you know, I feel frustrated at times. Other times I feel like some progress is being made. It does feel like, you know, a step or two forward and a step back. But we need more advocates. We need more people doing this work. 
Um, there just aren't enough people, frankly, who care about individuals in our jails and in our prisons, people in our courts. There aren't enough people who care. Folks will say they care, but when it comes right down to it, you know, uh, there are not enough uh, people who are genuinely concerned. And that was another reason I said, <laughs> I've got to get involved, you know. Uh, there just are not enough people paying attention. And I was one of them, you know, until it became personal. I didn't pay much attention. Such good work, Doug. Um, you know, it's, it's so... Uh... <laughs> It's so beautiful to see. I know lots of lots of folks who, you know, doing all the time that I have done. I know lots of folks who who have um, been incarcerated, you know, who who get out and and share your your passion. Um, you know, they get out. They want to they want to make a real and, and lasting change, um, you know, but but you're right there. There are not enough people who care enough to take action, you know, uh, on the surface, like you said, they'll say they care. Um, but when it comes time to, to take some action and, and, and mobilize, right. Um, and do the things that, that need to be done in order to create the change, those folks are nowhere around. Um, you know, and that's part of why we're doing this radio show, right? Like we want folks to know, um, prisons are not the answer right we want folks to hear the stories of everyday people who've had uh terrible experiences while incarcerated um and we want folks to know uh about the incredible work they're doing um now that that they're out here right that they've uh reacclimated to uh their communities um and have have jumped into doing some some beautiful work so I can't thank you enough for, first of all, coming on this show today and and sharing your story and a little bit about, you know, the work that you're doing now, but also for for just showing up, you know, for getting out, for for making a commitment to to yourself and and to your community to take action. I, I appreciate you so much in this work as a person, as a comrade, and I just can't thank you enough. Well, you're very kind. And uh, again, I said it before, but I'll say it again, that it's people like you that really do help to keep me motivated. And uh, we do need more people. So folks listening, uh, I'm glad you're listening, but uh, there are ways to get involved and I hope more people will. Uh, I know that, you know, a lot of people who get out of jail or prison really aren't in a position to to get actively involved. And I also knew that I had maybe some connections and, you know, some knowledge that a lot of people don't have. And so I knew I had a I had to put that to work. And so that's what I try to do. So thank you, Marion, very much. Yeah, thank you, Doug. All right. Well, that wraps up today's show. Join us next week we'll, when Linda and Kenzie air their show, Creating Windows, Not Bars, on, on Justice Radio. They're going to be speaking with formerly incarcerated women about family reunification and uh, relationships after prison. Uh, you can visit the Justice Radio show page on, on WMPG.org for archived episodes aired on WMPG and WERU. And I'd like to give a big thank you to Samuel James for his gift of music that opens and closes each episode in our series. We'll see you next month. <laughs>